You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. Welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment, Deepening Your Practice. It is June 3rd, 2021. It's uh, 7.40 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And uh, we've been talking about uh, the path to enlightenment for the last couple of weeks, and I thought I would continue tonight talking about um, a knowledge of conditionality, which is the second stage. Make sure I got that right. Uh, insight knowledge that discerns conditionality, purification by overcoming doubt. Uh, doubt is uh, in in this reference the the skeptical doubt that this is the path and that this path leads to enlightenment. Um, most of the time when you uh, read texts uh, like uh, this manual of insight, the uh, different uh, aspects of this are infused in uh, Buddhist thought. So for instance, uh, in the view of conditionality is described in five ways in, in the manual. Um, the first being that you understand that the nature of uh, the human condition is based on these um, Buddhist tenets. Um, as householders, I'm not uh, sure uh, of the practicality of that, uh, particularly if you don't grow up in a Buddhist context and understanding the nature of that, that death is caused by life, uh, life ends in, in death, and that conditions set up uh, reincarnation as a process that's uh, um, that you could choose your way out of if you were willing to pursue the path and, and become uh, enlightened. Uh, conditionality uh, in a, a more practical uh, telling of it would be that uh, the current conditions set up the future conditions and that the past conditions set up uh, the present conditions. Uh, you could even uh, talk about it in terms of quantum mechanics, which is uh, one way that I like to think about it. In the present moment, what opens up in front of you are all of the possibilities that you could choose. All of the possibilities that are opening up in this moment are, are based on the choice that you made in the last moment, because all of the possibilities of this moment are linked to the possibilities uh, uh, in the past moment. As soon as you choose something in this moment, all of the choices except for the one uh, that you took fall away. And based on that choice in the next moment opens all of the choices that are available based on the choice that you made in this moment. Is that making sense in terms of a, a way to go? Um, <clears throat> How do we know what those conditions are that set this process in place? Um, and so there is the Buddhist philosophy, there are the Buddhist cosmology about this. Um, you have eye consciousness, which is capable of sensing light uh, when it encounters a light object, a photon, and there's contact a consciousness of that sensing experience opens. 
um, the mind, the body mind processes it for uh, Vedna. I like to call Vedna processing speed. If it's urgent and needs attention, it goes first. If it's neutral and doesn't matter whether you process it or not, it largely doesn't get processed. And then if it's a pleasant experience and there's time for it, then you encounter the pleasant uh, experience. Um, let me just make a quick adjustment here. That basically makes sense, right? Uh, the object that can be sensed encounters the capacity to sense it. Contact happens. Uh, the consciousness of the experience of sensing arises. Uh, it's evaluated for processing speed, and then it's compared to the perceptual database. If there's a close enough match in the perceptual database, then the unfixated ultimate experience takes on the characteristics of that and is formed into uh, uh, conceptual reality, which is a construct of the, the conditioning and the, the mind and the process of the human condition. Um, and that can be accurate or not accurate depending on the qualities of the mind. We have then the past and the future, the conditions of the past set up the conditions of the present, which set up the conditions of the future. Um, seeing matter in that way. One of the things that comes up in your meditation practice is that you track things, Christian? I don't want to derail too much, but you, you mentioned enlightenment, and I'm, and I'm curious, why would someone who doesn't believe in reincarnation want to pursue enlightenment? What is it about uh, enlightenment and reincarnation that makes it attractive? I, it just seemed like that was that was the way it's positive in the sort of Buddhist idea that it gets you out of reincarnation. Uh, maybe I'm missing, maybe I'm missing something. But why why would I want to pursue enlightenment? I guess is the question I'm asking. So it's an interesting point. If you become enlightened, then you don't have to be re reincarnated, so you don't have to suffer anymore. Um, if you practice meditation and you develop these skills uh, for being in the world in such a way that you don't suffer anymore, is that enough? Yeah, I think so. So then whether you're reincarnated or not doesn't matter as much as really the desire is to end the experience of suffering. So then the, the, the doubt, the extinguishing of doubt would be the idea that I can end my suffering. Right. I practice. This, this practice, this path would lead to the end of your suffering. And would okay. that be sufficient? That'd be great. It would be worth doing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how I think about it. Um, I tend to be, um, I don't mean this as, as, a, as a, a belief. I don't, it isn't, a, it, it isn't so much an experience of believing or choosing to believe something or choosing not to believe something, but what is the experience of that? Um, 
it's an interesting uh, conversation to have really we live in a in a in a in the west and uh, most of the time meditation is taught uh, in the Western Buddhist context or in a secular context, which removes the practices from spirituality and a spiritual context for the practice uh, in the very uh, in the most secular practices it's taught as a stress reducer and a, a happiness booster and in uh, in a, a, a large swath of the Western um, Buddhist world, enlightenment is not thought of something that is attainable. And so it isn't the general uh, topic of practice. Um, I have a, a, a certain frustration with this because when I practice in a Buddhist context with the, the spiritual instruction uh, included, um, I noticed that most of the states that arise in those practices, I've had lots of experience of in the secular practices or in in um, the the Western mindfulness practices, uh, but they've never been contextualized in a spiritual way that they then are useful in furthering uh, enlightenment. It becomes more about states that you can get into, and there's there's even a competition around which states that you can get into. There's a lot of talk about the the states themselves and the qualities of the states, but without them being contextualized in a in a in a spiritual framework of the value of them in terms of what leads to uh, the experience of enlightenment or even what enlightenment is. Uh, doesn't really arise in the in the context of that way of teaching, um, which I find uh, particularly uh, um, frustrating. Um, I've sat a retreat with Dan uh, for eight days and uh, noticed that in in the the practices that he was teaching, as each thing was contextualized uh, spiritually, it it changed the the flavor of the experience in a way that was very useful even though the states were something I was quite used to from other practices that I'd done. Jake? I was just wondering if you could speak to the relationship between the attachment work and spirituality as you're defining it within the religious sense and how the, what the, you know, just, I just wanted to toss that into the mix in the conversation <laughs> that you were speaking to. Because it's meditation speak. and attachment, is that why you're doing this? <laughs> right, right. No, because just the idea that you're bringing up that in the West, you're saying that uh, typically we're practicing in a secular world and not a religious world or a spiritual worldview. And I was wondering if you could... Um, connect that to the attachment work like you know can there be spirituality without <clears throat> like you know secure attachment i mean what's the relationship between uh, or like you know attachment repair and spiritual aspiration compared to uh having um you know an insecure kind of framework or way that you're looking at the world and the, the sort of secular practice. I was wondering if you could speak to that. Um, 
in householder practice, uh, and um, I'm so I'm not a monastic and don't live in a monastic environment to comment particularly on that. But in a householder uh, environment, uh, we uh, exist in a in a collaborative framework. Uh, you know, I don't grow any of my own food. I don't uh, procure any of the uh, fuel that I use. I didn't build the car that I drive. Without all of those contributions of all of those people, the way that my life functions would not be possible if I had to do all of that myself. There's an exchange uh, often of money, but I provide services and uh, I get money and then I exchange that uh, with other people. That's the context in which I live. And so the capacity to relate to people in a collaborative uh, way is very useful for that uh, system to work. And you can see uh, that people who are very good at that, very collaborative, uh, are very uh, able to engage and connect other people, uh, tend to have a stable uh, platform in which to explore the things that are then meaningful to them. Particularly in the West, in the way that we practice, uh, practice itself is very resource intensive. And if you, you aren't able to generate uh, some sense uh, or some capacity for resources, you are unable to practice. One of the things that makes uh, the Buddha Dharma in the West so white and so affluent is that there is no societal support for the practice. And if you don't have the capacity to draw that uh, toward yourself, then you don't have the capacity to practice. I would, I think that in, in our, in the US, the, the, the group that has the largest POC involvement in it is um, Nairishran uh, Buddhism, which is also called prosperity uh, Buddhism. So uh, it's, it, it's uh, uh, organized around generating that kind of sense of prosperity, which is very different than the the spiritual uh, um, description of uh, Dharma in the more affluent communities. Yeah, yeah. I was just, that's kind of why I wanted to ask, because when you go to a Dharma center, uh, the, the ones I've been to, they just have this feeling of kind of uppityness and kind of whiteness. And, you know, <laughs> like, and the, there comes with that sense of sort of competition, this, this sort of sense of like you maintain your personality structure that has its sort of defensive positioning and its aspirational kind of competitiveness and just take that into the world of meditation and i was wondering if you thought that you know doing the attachment work as a preliminary practice could really help soften that or, or if there is a way to sort of point that out to people or is it just the sort of thing like the way dan set it up like if people see that in themselves and want to change that, then they come. But otherwise, uh, don't you don't don't make that something that stands out too much. Mostly, I notice uh, that uh, before I was teaching uh, so much about attachment uh, that people came uh, to uh, Buddha Dharma because of suffering, their own suffering. 
And also they came because the other approaches that they had tried, and usually they had tried many, did not offer relief to the suffering. And so, uh, you know, way back when, this was more uh, um, sort of a sidetrack from, from uh, mainstream culture, uh, that after trying the approaches in mainstream culture to address the, the suffering experience that you had, you uh, and they didn't work you ended up in in meditation practices um, yeah. it has since become quite a bit more mainstream than that uh, and and in the early part of my teaching experiences there tended to be two distinct groups of people if you looked at a bell curve of the distribution of people doing well in the world uh, or not doing well in the world the people that did very poorly were in the meditation rooms and the people that did really well were in the meditation rooms and nobody else was there. The reason that the people who did really well were there was because they could easily get any goal they set for themselves and they remained unhappy uh, in their experience of being alive and they were looking for a source of meaningfulness that would solve that for them. The people that functioned really poorly didn't have the experience of getting their goals easily met. And so they were really looking for a way to repair themselves so that they could get into the fray of competition. And I noticed in, in when I started t teaching um, that both groups would come to the classes and that there would be an antagonism between them. Um, the, the super successful people or the people who, uh, maybe that's not a good word, people who could easily reach the goals that they set for themselves would plow ahead and do tons of practice and get really excellent at doing the practice. And the people that could barely function could barely practice, barely understand anything. And the, 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 uh, that uh, upper end of it wanted to zoom as fast as they could go and the, the other end could barely uh, keep up. And so there would be an antagonism between uh, the teaching not going fast enough uh, and the, the teaching going too fast. Uh, and so uh, they actually began to, to separate uh, in that way. So then what you see is a culture where the people that like to go really fast have these uh, centers where they can go really fast, but they don't really serve the people that can barely function very well. And then you come into the places where people don't function very well and there's very few resources available to that group mm -hmm. to practice. Um, do, do you think that that sort of, I'm sorry to keep going on and on, this is the last time I'll raise my hand or speak out in session. You don't have to uh, restrict yourself in that way. Is it? I just don't want to take <laughs> everyone's time or whatnot if others have questions, but I was just wondering if you, what do you think about that that aspiration of like, like you said, I mean, to be in the world and to be competitive and acquisitive and, you know, getting things that you want. I, do you think that sort of skill set, how does that serve people in a spiritual or religious sense? I mean, I know if you're approaching meditation through the secular worldview, you can do that sort of plowing ahead getting what you want knowing yourself like that that same sort of frame, mental framework and just applying that into the the meditation world because the context is secular 
but I, do you think that's something, uh, I mean, do you, do you think that's the, what it, <clears throat> if the, if the context is different, if the context is inherently spiritual or religious, then what is that sort of drive to, to be getting ahead and plowing ahead and getting your way? Does that then become something that looks more like maladaptive and not really totally uh, coherent with the goals of spirituality or religion? I think that was the thing I'm trying to bring up. I don't worry about that so much in people yeah. that work really hard and achieve because if you can guide them into what to practice, what mm -hmm. insights arise, arise from what they're practicing. And if you guide them well, they will break open their own heart into bodhicitta, that awakened mm -hmm. heart, and that that will change uh, all of that motivation in a way that's much more wholesome in terms of what we understand. Okay. And that, that it's a natural outcome of the practice if they practice in a way that's well guided. So you don't actually mm -hmm. have to worry about that at all. You just have to encourage them to practice in a way that will open uh, their heart. And then once their heart is open, they will see the world the way that it is and be inclined toward uh, um, uh, helping, I guess is the way I would mm -hmm. describe it. They're, they're, they'll be inclined toward being service of the world because that's where they're finding the meaning, which is what they came to find in the first place. I see, I see. It, so it, that's how it's transformed. It, it isn't that people with a really strong drive decrease that drive, it's that their drive gets transformed into something positive. Right. It's more of a danger in the group that doesn't function very well because if you can get them to function better, they want to start competing in in the mm. secular world and achieve secular goals uh, because they haven't been able to get through the cycle of discovering that the attaining of those goals often doesn't provide the meaning that they were looking for. I see. I see. It's very easy to say that this all of these objects don't have any meaning because you've acquired all of those objects and you haven't found the meaning in them. It's harder for people that haven't been able to acquire any of them to understand that actually there's nothing in them that will provide the meaning that you're actually describing. Okay. Uh, so even, even in a religious context or a spiritual context, you, you want to help people uh, be able to achieve their secular goals as a prerequisite towards their spiritual development. Well, I think that one of the reasons the attachment stuff is so useful for the group that doesn't function well is that most of the time the root cause of that uh, is the attachment disturbances. And that if you can teach them to repair the attachment disturbance and include in that uh, uh, an understanding of what exploration is and what meaning is and how to explore so that you're actually uh, pursuing a primary um, uh, exploration and not a secondary one, then the, they find what is actually meaningful and can then, in that sense, bypass. Uh, oops, bypass is such a tricky word in our culture, but they can uh, forego or renounce the need for uh, that kind of uh, material success because they they're already finding meaningfulness just in the way wow. that it's set up
um, in terms of the practice. Okay, thank you a lot for describing that. That helps me have a more better understanding of the the model that you you've developed. The um, you know, uh, if you uh, grow up with a sense of security, which is a really low bar. I mean, I I, I know that uh, uh, because I teach meditation and attachment that uh, most of the audience that comes to this come because uh, I'm talking about uh, attachment difficulties, which sets up this whole cascade of other uh, difficulties. Um, but when you don't have all of that and you have a sense of security in the world, you you already have a habit and you have a, have a lifelong habit of placing around yourself the, uh, the essential people that you need to support you. And they do support you in the things that you find interesting for yourself. And so you have all of those, uh, all of the basis that you need to dive in and, 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 and go deep. But if you don't have that and you aren't able to set up supportive relationships around you it, and, and you're dealing with the, the very difficult early experiences that lead to uh, attachment disturbances, it's very easy to bump into things on the spiritual path that completely derail you. And mm -hmm. then you don't have the, the support team around you to, to help you uh, integrate those experiences. And so you can't go forward or you go forward in fits and starts. Uh, and uh, the, the terrible suffering that you're experiencing isn't relieved enough to make it possible really to continue. So you need to really meet people where they are and attend to them in a way that they need to be attended to so that they have the direct experience that uh, that's a possibility. So I was teaching a class earlier and I described this very basic setup for uh, entering into secure functioning relationships. The first is that you pay attention as you're engaging somebody, whether they're, whether you feel emotionally regulated by them or not. Do you feel better after half an hour of being with them? Do you feel the same or do you feel worse? That's essential to know. These processes of emotional co-regulation are unconscious. They're automatic. Your conditioning meets somebody else's conditioning and they either mesh well or they don't. And if they don't mesh well, there's not a whole lot that you can do about that to get it to work better. You really do have to pay attention to who and, uh, has the capacity to regulate you and who doesn't. If they regulate you, then you need to pay attention to whether you're regulating for them. You could be dysregulating for them. They could be really regulating for you and you could be dysregulating for them. Or they could be really regulating for you and they don't have much effect one way or the other on being with you or uh, you they could be re you could be really regulated by them and they could be really regulated by you and that's very valuable and you want to recognize that but you have to ask them you have to 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 have the experience of several times with them at the beginning to see whether that reliably happens if both of those things happen then you have to inquire of them what it is that you would have to do for them so that they felt well taken care of 
And then you would have to evaluate whether you will enjoy doing that because you're going to have to do a lot of it and you're going to have to do it over the course of the whole relationship. And if you don't like it or you don't enjoy doing it, you won't do enough of it that they'll feel taken care of and the relationship will have, uh, won't settle into a, a productive experience. And then the last piece is, will they enjoy taking care of you in the way that you need to be taken care of? Because if they don't enjoy it, they won't do enough of it so that you feel taken care of. And so if all yeah. four of those things are in place, then you really have the possibility of developing a relationship that has legs. But secure people have always done this. Uh, they always consider this unconsciously or consciously, and they value and are willing to put the time, energy, and resources into relationships that support them because they know the value of being supported. They know the value of being encouraged. But people with insecure attachment don't know that. So one of the things that you need to do is change your mind about it uh, and take the risk of putting a lot of energy into a relationship that has these qualities in it and not, uh, um, in some sense, uh, dump a lot of energy into a relationship that actually can't go anywhere. If these four things are not in place at the beginning, they're not going to be in place two years down the line. Right. And so you'll have squandered, I say squandered because I want to be slightly hyperbolic about this. You'll have squandered two years of energy on a relationship that didn't prove it, provide for you. And that will further reinforce the idea that relationships are unreliable and you can't risk putting the energy into them. Whereas if you picked and uh, carefully developed the relationship so that uh, it was worth the time, energy, and resources, then you have this support that you don't have to work at. Secure relationships settle. You don't, they don't constantly uh, abrupt. They don't take a lot of management back and forth. You make agreements, the relationship settles in, and you fulfill your responsibilities, the other person fulfills their responsibility and all of that extra energy that comes from that, you can then use for your exploration. People who are afraid to explore, of course, would prefer to use up all of that energy so there's no energy to explore so they don't have a sense of failure in, in not being able to explore. So they get into relationships that are extremely volatile. All of the energy is consumed by trying to get the relationship to function a little bit. There's nothing left over for exploration. And so they don't have to explore. They don't have to get into those uh, uncomfortable places that uh, children get into, but if they have the support of their caregivers can work through and develop the skill set. If you didn't have that, of course, you have to do it now as an adult, which is a little bit more challenging. Um, or a lot more, depending on, on how um, the conditioning went, how they, how you were uh, treated. 30% of the time or better, your needs need to be met by your caregivers in order to be secure. I, I want to, to really emphasize how astonishingly low the bar is. 
if you have uh, attachment disturbances, please also understand how difficult those childhood experiences were when even 30% of the time your needs weren't being met. I think we, it's very, one of the things I, I think about it as an arrogance of secure people is they have no concept of how difficult uh, the childhood experiences were of people who have uh, attachment disturbances. They can't conceive of it because their childhoods were nothing like that. Um, less than 30% of the time your, need, your, your most basic needs are, are met. And you develop these strategies to cope with the severity of that, with the difficulty of that. And you're a child with, with very limited capacities in comparison to what uh, adult capacities are. Um, so we come in, uh, if you have attachment disturbances and you're looking for a way out of suffering and uh, and you're presented with a uh, description of enlightenment, which is going to relieve that suffering. And you're presented with instructions that are fairly general. And then you attempt to develop a, a meditation skill around that. And um, oftentimes, uh, particularly if it's not managed well, uh, and you're pushed into some kind of insight practice right off the bat, it really uh, heightens the experience of distress that you have um, because it's it's pointing to these these uh, uh, um, this conditioning that was so uh, challenging uh, and uh, and so in, particularly in in the, the the low functioning group, what you have are sprints at trying to learn to practice and then it becoming too difficult and stopping wandering away and then when the suffering of life gets again too great and you look for some solution then maybe you come back in and and do another sprint at trying to get somewhere so that your suffering is relieved um you know i'm, I'm um, i need a lot of instructions and i need little tiny steps because of the way that I my thinking process goes. I'm dyslexic, I'm dyspraxic, I'm dyscalculic, I'm dys, uh, you know, pretty much the whole dysgraphic. I mean, I read at a, uh, probably a, 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 a third of the rate that somebody who can doesn't have all of that. Everything for me is really slow and it, takes a lot of deliberation and determination to get through it because it's so difficult. But it's always been like that for me. And so if I wanted to learn anything, I knew that I needed to, to, to go through that process. You'd think audiobooks would be better, but my, my, the, disor the, the hearing part is worse than the reading part in terms of word order. Uh, my, people used to say they thought I was profound because we'd go out in a group, but my mind doesn't um, separate words based on who's saying them. It just plays them in the order that I hear them. So that if I'm at a group, uh, sitting at a table and two or three people are talking at the same time, I'm not separating them by who's saying what. I'm just hearing the string of words uh, in the order that they're that they're coming into my ear. So I have to 
uh, to try and piece together uh, the information that's coming in so that I can understand what the conversation is. And I, it's very easy to get that wrong. So I'm constantly misunderstanding what's uh, happening. And so what typically happens to me in a group is I just fall silent because I can't keep up with the uh, with uh, with uh, the language, um, so we we all have whatever it is that we have that we need to uh, do to learn. So the the one of the reasons that Shinzen uh, was very helpful to me is that he's very step oriented and the steps are small and I can I could follow them easily. So I could I could actually have a meditative experience from that. Uh, one of the reasons that Dan is my teacher is because he's in the pointing out the great way style, which is uh, very uh, intense, uh, very uh, de uh, deliberate instructions that move in small steps. So that that's the way that I learn. Um, the the uh, a very general approach doesn't work at all for me. I can't understand it really. Um, and and I I've never really been in a situation where. Uh, I've gotten too much instruction in, in that way. And, uh, and I have had people say to me, you over instruct everything. Um, but uh, th that's the thing that lets me learn. And, 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 and so uh, that's how I tend to, to frame things. That all that's all making sense, right? Um, so we come in, we come in really with the thing that we want to get out of the practice. Uh, most of us come in with no idea what the practice is, no idea what the practice is going to deliver. We're not oriented to that. We don't even want to know that. What we want to know is, can you help me with this thing that's happening to me that I can't find any other help for? That's uh, mainly who comes into uh, meditation practice. So then, um, <clears throat> how do you address that? Um, in the teacher role, of course, you need to respond individually to each person, but then uh, create these structures so that people can come in to learn. The reason why I think enlightenment is something that's worth going for is because the suffering is so minimal in that. And if you come in because you're suffering, and you can understand these uh, basic things, then you can come into a place where there's uh, very little suffering. Occasionally you get caught up uh, and there's suffering there, but most of the time you're not suffering that much. Um, I think one of the things that was so mind-blowing to me was that when I flipped out of being totally oriented towards self and um, moved into orientation of awareness, the suffering fell away and it was mind blowing to me how intense the suffering had been and how long that I had endured it. It was really uh, surprising to me that I could, I could have endured that for so long. Um, and now I don't endure it much at all. I do sometimes get caught up uh, and then uh, I have a lot of strategies in order to come out of them. Is that all making sense? Um, we have not gone so deeply into the second uh, uh, stage, <laughs> but I do want to come back just for a second and talk about inferential uh, uh, knowledge. We don't need to pick up everything. 
we need to pick up some things and to have a really clear experience of some things. And then anything that's in that pattern we can infer will operate in the same way. Is that making sense? So that if you take in eye consciousness uh, and then eye mind consciousness forms it into something, you can infer from that that each time there's eye consciousness, which arises because the capacity to sense meets an object that can be sensed, eye consciousness arises that I-mind consciousness then will take that light and form and shape it into something if the pattern is recognized. And then that will happen with all uh, I-consciousness leading I-mind consciousness. Is that making sense? And it also applies to all of the other sense gates. If you hear a sound, that is to say, the sound object has contact with the capacity uh, of ear consciousness, uh, of ear, then ear consciousness arises, and then uh, mind will then attempt to understand what that sound is. And if it does uh, succeeds in that, then ear mind consciousness arises. And that each time um, the object that can be sensed encounters the capacity to sense, the consciousness of that sensing experience will arise. It will, and mind will then attempt to decide what it is. And each time it decides what it is, I mind consciousness will create conceptual reality. Is that making sense? Based on the conditions, the past, present, and future, the past conditioning informs what the present experience is, which sets up the, the meaning for the future experience. Is that all pretty clear? So uh, one way to explore this in meditation is to begin uh, to pay attention to the activity of mind. So there's a few ways to do that. One is that if you don't intentionally direct your awareness toward something, what you'll notice is it, it's directed. It goes to things. That there's a preference for the things that it goes to. Some things you like, so you pay more attention to them. Some people, some things you dislike, so you avoid paying attention to them. That's the activity of mind. Um, mind also gathers uh, snapshots or mind moments and strings them together, and you create this experience of the present moment based on that. So one way to describe that would be uh, you're reading the you're reading something in a book. Um, and then you hear a bird. And so your attention is drawn from the book to the sound of the bird. But the sound of the bird then creates a picture in visual thinking of the bird, and your attention moves from the sound of the chirping of the bird to the image of the bird in the mind. But the image of the bird in the mind is from the past, and so as you pick up the rest of the, the, the uh, experience beyond the bird, you're then drawn into a memory of something that happened in the past. And then there's a flood of images of memories around the time that you originally heard the bird cry. Uh, and then you're, you're then out of the experience of the present moment into the succession of memories of, the, of uh, what happened in the past. And then the bird chirps again and you come back in to the experience of the present moment where you are and then you uh, realize that uh, 
you were reading a book and then you returned to the experience of reading the book. And that was all the movement of the condition before setting up the condition of the present moment, which then sets up the condition of the next moment. Is that making sense in terms of a description? Because what I want you to do now is in practices, pay particular attention to the movement of your attention throughout the period of meditation. Jake? I was going to say, yeah, it does make sense, except for the way that you use the, the word you, because it's an automatic process of mind. It's not that you are doing that. It's just, it's just happening. You it's is true. a different subject, isn't it? English is missing vital words. <laughs> I think it's important to point that out, though, because it's not like you are making no. that process happen. Totally right. The mind is doing it. The process is happening. How? It, what word would you use? No, I wouldn't say there is a word because there's a process. It's a process, right? right. You say the mind also, that's like a noun. It doesn't right. work. It's, it's, the process is happening. So, the, you know, it has to be like in that framework. The description is in that framework where there's... Uh, I just wanted to point that out. Or share I'm that. very happy that you did because you're completely <laughs> right. Thank you. All right. Um, <clears throat> go ahead and take your meditation posture. We are a little bit late for starting the meditation, so we'll do 30 minutes. So any comments or questions about the practice? Christian? I noticed something really interesting uh, when it was just see, hear, feel. It was kind of like really subtly going between see and feel. Um, and I was mostly just following my breath for the feel. And then the see was kind of seeing into the darkness and being aware of that. And then when you opened it up into focus in, focus out, like immediately feel in popped up and and like dominated the whole thing which i found really interesting because i wasn't feeling that sensation uh before that so it's like it's like i got permission to feel it or something like that good good clarity someone else all good So uh, thank you for coming. I really appreciate your practice. Um, we have a retreat coming up on June 12th. There's still a few spots in it if you want to uh, practice. We do a Metta Vipassana retreat. So the first half of the retreat is all Metta practice, and the second half of the retreat is all Vipassana practice. Um, we have two tracks. You can do the attachment track or you can do the uh, uh, liberation track, uh, either one. Um, so uh, take a look at that. And then uh, in July, I'm starting a series of day longs on the meditation and attachment level one. Uh, we'll go through the whole uh, uh, framework of 
using meditation to repair attachment. And then the, the fourth in the series is uh, called uh, Meditation and Attachment for Relationships, which is about how the dynamics of secure functioning relationships. So take a look at that. Uh, and then we're actually considering, depending on how the summer goes and what happens with the pandemic, doing an in-person retreat in uh, December uh, up in um, uh, the Sierras. So take a look at that. I offer the teaching freely, um, but I do hope that you'll support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing by making a donation. There's a link to do it on the website, but also in the email you would have gotten about the class. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you for your practice, and we'll we'll see you soon. I hope. Bye now.